If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. Hang on, I'm still... Wait a second, I'm still... Uh, hang on. Just doing too many things at once here. Good afternoon, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It's Hamilton Today. And uh, uh, I got five things going on at once. Uh, great to have you here. We're trying to figure out exactly what time spring arrives. I believe it's just after 5.30 today. Uh, but we've got our crack staff on it right now. Uh, you know, it depends on what time zone you're in. Ops, you know, ob- obviously, but what time for us here does it actually? And I believe I heard it, 5.30 this afternoon. So tomorrow, actually, officially the first full day of spring. But spring arrives today, apparently at 5.30. So we should have something special for that. What would you like? <laughs> Easter Bunny, what do we need? Uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's good. So tomorrow is the first full day of spring. Now, I'm trying to get this right now. Now the days start getting longer. So there's actually more sunlight than daylight as of first thing tomorrow. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, there you go, 5.30 this afternoon. And this can all be horribly wrong. But I will take my slaps on the air if needed. Um, but then uh, tomorrow, the first full day of spring uh, with the spring equinox. And the days now start getting longer. And, of course, the longest day of the year with the summer equinox in June at June 21st. All right. So there you go. So, uh, you know, you don't hear a lot of people. There you go. Uh, I think Will Erskine just confirmed it's 534. But he's going to ask someone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 534. Uh, we had him on earlier. Wait a second. Let me verify that. The judge is going to accept that. It is. Yes, it is 530. No, we still haven't got exact confirmation. So take the horn back. <clears throat> take everything back. We're not. No, I, I believe it is. Anyway, uh, you don't hear many people complaining about now spring forward, fall back. Remember that? Like last week, he goes, oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. It's pitch black. It's bright. I don't know what day it is. My, I'm, you know, I'm going around in circles. My dog doesn't know what to do. Uh, he's pooping at different times. He's eating at different times. It's all hell. Now that uh, we're into the first, well, tomorrow, the first full day of spring, 534, we believe today. And, you know, it's nice outside. It's a beautiful day, beautiful sunny day, a little crisp, but beautiful. And, you know, just the idea, and we've already noticed, hey, yeah, it's a little uh, lighter later. And, um, you know, now it's only going to progress till we get all the way to, to, to June 21st. You're not hearing a lot about that sleep now, are you? Huh? Huh? There we go. So I think I'm going to go back to my original statement that the only people that talk about time change are the professors and stuff that study it, and we in the media uh, twice a year because there's nothing you know left to talk about. So uh, now it seems all good. All right, Dion and the Belmonts. Now we started to play this on Friday, uh, but then got kicked back because it wasn't. <laughs> Dion, I think, is from like, is he from Philly or New Jersey? New Jersey. Uh, anyway, uh, number 154 on Rolling Stone's top 200 singers of all time. No Celine Dion. And uh, we started down that road on Friday, and then unfortunately, uh, we got sidetracked by this 
giant St. Patty's Day parade, which just pushed us right into the ditch. And we had to start playing people who were from actually Ireland. And, you know, it was, in the, you know, we probably should have done that. I mean, we do it every year, but I don't know. Maybe it's so there we go back to the list uh, as of today. Unless, of course, uh, another great rocker passes away and something happens uh, and we have to move away from the list again. All right. What else we got going on? So remember, on Thursday, there was the by-election. Uh, and we tried to get as many candidates who wanted to come on, on, uh, the main candidates, of course. And, uh, uh, we got the Greens, we got the Liberals, uh, the PCs never returned our call. And, uh, Sarah Jamma with the NDP, uh, they said they would come on. They booked on on the Friday and then to, to appear on the, on the Monday. And then with like a half an hour to go in the middle of the show, they canceled and they didn't really give an, a reason or an excuse and kind of a haphazard letter and uh, or email rather. And, and that was it. Uh, you know, no comment. Let's move on. So oddly enough, they wanted to come on today <laughs> or they called to see if we wanted them to come on today. I shouldn't be so impolite, should I? And um, and and, you know, that's sort of like having the hockey player on four days after the game. So, you know, anyway, there we are. So around and around we go in the game of politics. So I thought I'd update you on that story. What else we got? Uh, the Chinese president and the president of Russia are meeting today. Uh, this ahead of President, U.S. President Joe Biden coming up to here to, uh, coming up here to meet with the prime minister. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. The block again calling for, uh, Justin Trudeau to revoke, uh, uh David uh, Johnston as the rapporteur because you can't be independent if the prime minister picks it and everybody loves david johnston and he was a great governor general but he was also part of the trudeau foundation so there's you know i mean you you can't have uh you not you can't not have a perception of inter of interference and of uh and and, and of lack of independence uh if you're the one picking the person. So they're asking for that again as that story continues, uh, as well as more pressure on the prime minister's chief, uh, chief of staff to testify at these other inquiries we have into uh, election interference. And they keep filibustering to uh, end the time. So she never actually has the chance to do that. And then they wonder why people are calling for a public uh, inquiry. So that's all stuff we're looking at through the course of the afternoon. Hope you hang around with us. All right. We've certainly known how... A global pandemic and a change in behavior over a three-year period of time can certainly uh, throw a stick in the uh, in, in the spokes of the wheel of life, and things are just simply different than they were uh, three years ago. We've certainly heard of office space downtown. Uh, now, what happens to that as uh, a segment of the population stays home, and so on? And uh, some fascinating work is being done by Dope Chief Studios, located on the second floor at Jack. Jackson Square above the Farmer's Market and beside Liaison College on making available some of this space that is now becoming available. Let's introduce you to local artist and founder of Dope Chief Studios. The Dope Chief himself is here. Thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm great. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm here with uh, Tessa, another artist uh, in the studio space. Hey, so, hey, thanks for joining us. So explain what's going on here. And sorry, it's Tessa? Yeah, Tessa. Okay, either one, feel free to jump in and answer any of these. But uh, what are you doing here? Explain to everyone what's going on. 
Um, so Dope Chief Studios is right now a art studio that is opening itself to creatives in uh, Hamilton. Um, artists from painters, illustrators, um, apparel designers, uh, sculptors, all different types of mediums um, are welcome to come to the space and and utilize it. Um, an exchange of that creative energy is, is what we're trying to uh, revitalize downtown with. So talk about this space and how this all comes about, just depending on where we are right now in life. Um, so I, I, I feel like uh, downtown's definitely been changing, um, and a lot of those creative spaces have been disappearing. Um, I wanted to start focusing more on a lot of the kind of um, – empty spaces that have been that have been taking up a lot of the downtown core by filling those spaces with art and showcasing a lot of the people who have been creating quietly uh, in their homes for the last uh, couple of years or so. I think uh, a lot of that used to be the heart of Hamilton. The downtown core uh, really thrived off the artists that used to be here before the pandemic. And once everything kind of changed uh, and and places weren't utilized as much i feel like a lot of that culture has disappeared and by creating a space that invites artists and invites emerging artists and, and young artists who are looking for a place that they can connect with other artists with um i think it's a great way of of adding that culture back into into our community it's interesting how and and this happens with every city who goes through this we've seen period uh, you know uh, 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 parts of Toronto did this many years ago and such but you know uh, an art community will come over and they'll take or come in and they'll take over a a a piece of 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 the district what have you a piece of the area and they'll create there and what have you and then all of a sudden you know prices start to rise and slowly they get pushed out and have to go to other places again it's almost like a gentrification as yeah. they as this as the success that they help create sort of pushes them out now we've almost got the reverse happening here yeah i, I think yeah it's natural for any city to to grow and uh and when that happens i mean one of the first uh people to go are the artists um that's uh, yeah that, that happens everywhere and every place that has a large population but again artists are the ones who help uh, bring a lot of culture and enrich these spaces and they're the they're the people that uh, make these places beautiful and places that you want to spend your time and they they take um, their creativity and add soul back into these places uh, and Jackson Square opened its doors to me back in 2020 um, and by having this space it has allowed me to bring in other artists who are just beginning on their journey and uh, give them a place to create um, a place that they can grow um and we're kind of at the start of that we're just beginning that that uh that phase yeah i think Do especially get... like after the pandemic a lot of people mm -hmm. were heading towards more entrepreneurship and finding a way to make money without having to work for somebody and mm -hmm. i think when it comes to art it's a really hard space to navigate because there's no clear-cut answers on pricing networking how to acquire clients and so to have a space that we can provide for new artists where they can come in and have all of those questions answered and even any project they're working on, there's someone there that can help them who has an expertise in a different spot. So it's a really diverse space that's, I think, creating a lot of opportunity for these exact people. Yeah, exchanging that knowledge, that, you know, that experience so that um, they can help better navigate this from a creative place and also a business uh, place as well. Exactly. 
Art is art, but it's also business as well. And if one needs it to survive or wants to make a living at it, this is just things you have to learn. I was going to ask what you, what test of this has brought to you, but you've clearly just explained that. Is this pandemic, and we've seen it being a turning point in virtually everything, um, but in art as well, the way we appreciate it, the way the whole local movement. And again, now what you're doing and taking advantage of the space that's, that's available. Um, uh, yeah, like, like, like you said, I think everything changed, uh, changed in some way. Um, one thing that I noticed is in Hamilton, one thing that's really big is the, is the art crawls that happened downtown, uh, on James street, every second yeah. Friday of every month, you can go down James street and there are artists who line the streets and sell their art. And that is where I started. I saw, I started by just selling prints and, uh, making kind of a, a reputation as a local artist through that way. And when the pandemic hit and when things kind of slowed down uh, downtown, a lot of artists didn't have that that outlet to hmm. uh, engage with other people, but also grow their their business. I mean, no matter what you sell, whether it's art or it's a product or something, you still need to be able to do that as a business. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like Art Crawl was a great way of introducing uh, artists to that way uh, or a, a way of being able to do that. And it was something that really grew downtown and during the pandemic it kind of just uh wasn't there anymore and i think that hurt a lot of uh, local artists for sure how do artists find out more about uh, dope chief studios where do we go uh dope chief uh studios.com or uh the the username uh instagram dope chief studios is probably where you're going to find our more up-to-date uh things and i am at the dope chief and tessa is at Sun dudes. All right, Tessa and Dope Chief, founder of Dope Chief Studios, uh, second floor Jackson Square, uh, where artists unite. Good luck. Congratulations on this. Thank you Thank so you. much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, it's no. Uh, it's no, uh, certainly no secret what we've heard of air travel. Uh, I shouldn't be giggling because if you're caught in all of this, it's, it's horrible. Um, but what really stands out is the number of air passenger complaints to Canada's airports has more than tripled over the past year. And we were told a year ago that it was going to be getting better. Uh, soaring past 42,000, uh, 42,000, sorry, as of this month, cases that is. And, and, you know, we can certainly understand at the, uh, you know, a year ago or so, the issues they were having regarding, uh, uh pandemic loads and, or post pandemic loads and, 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 you know, getting back to where they needed to be. But you'd think by this time that things would be a little bit more calm than what they are. Uh, and now we're hearing the transportation minister saying that uh, more money to address the backlogs. I'm thinking, you know, is the money being put in the right spot? Of course, the backlogs need to be addressed at some point. Um, but should we fix the leak before, um, you know, we start bailing? <laughs> so uh, let's bring in Gabor Lukacs, President of Air Passenger Rights Advocacy uh, group. We've talked to him many times about this. Gabor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. It's great to join you again. So I, I think what stood out about this for me, Gabor, is I mean, we, we talked last week about this going up, but it, the fact that it's tripled in the last year when we think back a year ago and how bad it was uh, as, as the doors opened up, per se, you know, at, towards the end of the global pandemic and such. And we can understand there's going to be growing pains and, and such. But are, are you surprised that a lot of these issues haven't been rectified by now? 
Unfortunately, I'm not surprised whatsoever. What we are seeing now and this growth and all the problems were structural uh, failures, um, failures by design that we predicted back already in 2019, a 52-page report that uh, listeners can find on our website. So for us, it was clear that this was doomed to fail, but the government and the airlines, of course, wanted to see things pan out because it was a way of pretending that something is changing, but in reality, not have any meaningful change. It has taken so long for it to fail because of the pandemic that kind of deferred the problem. But what the, the soaring complaint numbers and the challenges passengers are facing in enforcing their rights, that was perfectly predictable and foreseeable. The good news, however, is that today, um, transportation critic for the NDP, Mr. Taylor Bachrach, introduced a private member bill in the House of Commons that is going to fix the problem. That is uh, something that we fully support and we are not alone. Other consumer organizations like uh, the Option Consumer from Quebec and the Public Interest Advocacy Center are also supporting this important change. And we hope that um, lawmakers of all political stripes are going to help quickly pass this. Well, Gabor, that was easy. Why wasn't this done a while ago? Well, obviously, I'm being obviously, like uh, obviously invite the Minister of Transports uh, <laughs> of the past and the present to ask why they have not done it. We have so, always been telling the government and to the House of Commons and to Senate that Canada needs a European style uh, passenger protection regime and that what was being proposed was missing the mark. Unfortunately, they were not listening. You talked about fixing the problem. Um, clarify this for Canadians, what that means. You talk about the European model and such. So what aren't they doing that they need to be doing? What are some, you know, a few simple things that will, will turn this around? You said this template in a post-pandemic world isn't working. So what does that look like? So uh, the, perhaps the greatest shortcoming of the Canadian regime is its disproportionate complexity, which is completely disproportionate to the amount at stake and uh, requiring passengers, um, or at least arguably requiring passengers to present evidence that is typically within the airline's exclusive right. control, like what actually caused the flight delay or cancellation. That's what the airlines have been urging. And um, the the whole system where you need to sift through hundreds, if not thousands of pages of of logs and of technical reports is not conducive for adjudicating disputes that are a couple hundred dollars worth. In mm. Europe, it's a very simple system where uh, the airline can avoid paying compensation only in extraordinary circumstances. It would be something like a volcanic eruption, act of terrorism, sabotage, or if a particular model of an aircraft is grounded across the entire continent, not just one aircraft breaking down. And the advantage the European Union system has is that it is very, very simple and straightforward to decide whether you are owed compensation. You give me your flight number, your uh, scheduled departure time if on your ticket. One can look up when the plane actually landed, when it reached the gate. And unless there was some well-known, publicly known event uh, that was extraordinary circumstance, likely the passenger 
eligibility can be determined just from that information. Um, more money to, it's been announced, more money to fix this uh, 42,000 uh, person backlog that, that has happened and tripled in the last year or so. Um, could that money be better spent? I mean, obviously those people need yes. to be heard, but as you said, you know, if you're going, if you're spending all this time and money to go after a $500, $100 claim, of course that means a lot to the passenger, but you know what I'm saying here. I mean, is this, is this good money after bad here? Uh, the problem with the $76 million that have been announced is that the government has not coupled it with structural changes and amendments yeah. to the law. We certainly call on the government to support Mr. Bakra's private member's bill and adopt it as its own and have it passed as quickly as possible. But we fear the government will not do that. The government wants to continue to do some kind of patchwork solution and use the money just as a way of, of trying to get up, catch up with the backlog while the root cause of the problem, which is that it takes a disproportionate amount of labor to actually decide whether a passenger is owed compensation remains unresolved. So yes, enforcement needs more money, but first the, the regime has to be reformed so that the backlog will not keep rising. Uh, why it, it, this seems like common sense, but unfortunately, a lot of things with government does. Uh, but there's plenty of European models, as you say, uh, to look to for this. Is this pressure from the airlines for you know pressuring governments not to act on this? Uh, why not act when there are you know models around that are doing this efficiently? The reason that the government did not adopt the European model was quite clearly airline influence and airline lobbying. Airlines obviously don't like the European model because that would actually require the airline to do more than just hire people to send letters of rejections, but require airlines to change how they do business and how they behave, which is normally what the purpose of a passenger protection regime is. I would like to just remind listeners that this is not about punishing airlines. No. From our perspective as passenger rights advocates, we would like to see a harmonious smooth experience for passengers where the financial pressure on the airline, financial incentives for the airlines uh, are sufficient to ensure that the airline has enough staff, enough aircraft, and that the passenger has a seamless experience even when something goes wrong on the airline's side. They're just the airline solved in its back room. From a passenger perspective, there's no doesn't affect their, their trip. That's what a good regime accomplishes. Only got a few seconds left. Where do you see this going, Gabor? We'll have to see, uh, probably to elections. But uh, certainly, uh, if you have uh, strong feelings about it, give a call to a member of parliament and tell them to support Mr. Bakrak's private member bill because you would like to have a good travel experience. Gabor Lukacs, President, Air Passenger Rights Advocacy uh, Group. Uh, we hope this was getting better. It's more than tripled in the past year, that being the complaints. Gabor, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've uh, obviously known about uh, the allegations of Chinese uh, Communist Party interference in the last two elections, um, many calling for a public inquiry into all of this, and uh, the Prime Minister has in, in, instead uh, himself appointed David Johnston to, to look into uh, all of this, and uh, of course many are uh, saying this won't do much, than, uh, much more than what the committees are already doing. Uh, 
which we're seeing operating now, in, in which Katie Telford, the, uh, uh, the chief of staff at the prime minister's office, they want her to testify and they keep filibustering and whatever. Uh, and, and obviously she's not showing up or it's not happening. And as a result, uh, that's why people are asking for, um, you know, obviously a deeper public inquiry that, that, that is more neutral on this. Well, now Pierre Polyevra, conservative leader, is forcing MPs to debate and then vote on a motion uh, instructing an opposition-dominated House committee to strike its own review. Let's bring back Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I am. Thank you. So explain to us what's happening here and if this will have any teeth. Well, it will because um, a House committee has been trying to continue its hearings, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, and the Liberals have been filibustering there. And so now the whole House will vote on it, and um, it's just going to create news if all the Liberals vote against another committee holding hearings because they're filibustering at one committee already. If it does go forward and that other committee starts and the Liberals start a second filibuster, it's going to make them look even worse. So it it is uh, going to move things forward one way or another to either show that committees cannot do this because the Liberals are going to block it, or uh, therefore we need a public inquiry. And so the Liberals are going to be caught out one way or the other uh, eventually. They're just trying to use all the maneuvers they can in a minority government to try and delay things. This seems um, uh, uh, pretty obvious, but then again, I, I don't think it's front and center for most Canadians. But isn't the fact that Katie Telford is not testifying at these other committees and that there's all these obstructions being put in place to prevent her from doing so, does that not just drive home the point of and the need for a public inquiry? It does, and that's why... The Liberals are really on the horns of a dilemma, and they're going to get gored one way or another. Uh, and I think worse with the continuing cover-up uh, of, and delay, because it looks like they're hiding something. And, you know, the whole panel that was set up to supposedly uh, prevent uh, foreign interference and monitor it, it was really set up to cover things up, and it did for two years. Uh, almost uh, three years with regard to the 2019 election. And mm. now um, with the uh, committees and the liberal filibuster, it looks like a cover-up. And then Trudeau selecting his family friend, David Johnston, to supposedly report on things. He's not independent at all. He has no powers to investigate anything. He has no basis in uh, any law to get anyone to give him evidence. And again, he's a friend and handpicked by Trudeau. Again, that's just more a cover-up. It's This cover-up and delay is making the Liberals only look worse. And if they continue with it, they're still going to be stuck with an inquiry. It's going to happen one way or another. They're not going to filibuster right through the next election. Uh, and so why make yourself look worse and worse and worse and then end up with the same thing that would have happened if you just did the right thing in the first place two years ago, which is have a public inquiry by independent people. So what is happening today and the vote tomorrow on this? What, how do you see this playing out? Uh, I will be very interested to see whether Liberal MPs say, no, we're not towing the party line on this anymore, and it's ridiculous, and I'm not going to stand up for you, Prime Minister. 
uh, in the House, that's that's uh, a bit easier to do. In committee, if an MP said, no, I'm not going to go and continue the filibuster, then the prime minister can replace them and say, you're not going to that committee meeting then. I'm sending someone else. He shouldn't be able to. No party leader should be able to control who sits on committees. But that's the way it works currently, unfortunately. But in the House, they could show up or they could just not show up as liberals or they could show up and vote against the government uh, and against the cabinet and the prime minister. And so in that way, it's much less uh, can be controlled by the prime minister and cabinet when it's at the full house. So I expect it's going to pass and then go to committee and then the liberals have a real choice. Are they going to actually start a second filibuster to continue the cover up and delay? Or are they going to allow a committee of, with a majority of MPs whom they don't control, which is more independent than what David Johnson is, as a hand-picked friend of the Prime Minister, are they going to let this committee go ahead and actually continue questioning people? And there's no reason why it can't. The committee has full powers to subpoena witnesses, subpoena evidence, and as a result, has just as much investigative power as an inquiry, and as much independence, even more, because the majority of the members of the committee are not mm. liberals. Whereas well, we if, we see- had an, if we had a commission of inquiry, Trudeau looks like he would insist on choosing his own person, and mm. maybe he'll choose his friend again, David Johnson, to do the inquiry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who gets to do that? Uh, really quick, will we see uh, Katie Telford testify on this, do you think? Eventually, yes. A parliamentary committee has the power to uh, order anyone to come and testify and order the release of any evidence to the committee. Some of it, of course, would be behind closed doors because it is national security matters. If you refuse to show up, you can be found in contempt. Jeff Conagher with his co-founder of Democracy Watch, uh, conservative leader Pierre Polyevra, forcing MPs to debate and then vote on a motion uh, looking to strike its own committee to review the situation on election interference. Stuff, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. To take care. Bye for now. What Canadians want right now is for inflation to come down and for interest rates to fall. And that is one of our primary goals in this year's budget not to pour fuel on the fire of inflation. So in our budget, we will exercise fiscal restraint. And what would that be? You know, I love when Christy Freeland and the Prime Minister tell us the obvious, express the obvious. You know, inflation is making it difficult for you to put a roof over your head and feed your family. You know, people are distrusting the government more. You know, I mean, don't tell us what we already know. Give us solutions to all of these problems. Um, just saying. This man is currently in FLA, and he is so nice of himself to take out uh, a portion of his vacation time to yak with us. Eric Cam is with us, Professor Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Eric, thanks so much for the time. I hope you're doing well in sunny FLA. Scott, I'd love to tell you I'd love to be home, but it would be a 100% lie. <laughs> so what's it like down there now, considering all the news surrounding Donald Trump? I know that's not what we called to talk to you about, but uh, it looks like he's 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 going to court. Uh, he may be going to court. He may even be going to jail. But if you are in South Florida, he very much is winning the court of public opinion. The people down here love mm. Donald Trump. They believe that they are just caught up in a what they consider to be a Democratic slash woke um windstorm 
and they don't appreciate it. They don't like it. And for better or for worse, they see some combination of DeSantis and Trump as the way out of a world that they no longer want to be trapped in. So make no mistake, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but these people are very prepared to defend their former president um, as far as they have to. It seems kind of bizarre that considering all these stories and storylines that Donald Trump's been in uh, through his whole presidency, that it's the porn star that's bringing him down. That's the weirdest thing in all of this. Um, I could make a joke about it, how it doesn't usually bring you down, but that wouldn't be right for radio. <laughs> all right, let's move on. Uh, Christy of Freeland, uh, you heard a, an excerpt from it. She was in the media today. It looks like uh, they're dropping little uh, bombs about what uh, is coming or what is uh, to expect in the upcoming budget. Is uh, this a, a preview or is this kind of trying to turn the page uh, a real bad week or week series of weeks for the prime minister on election interference from the Chinese Communist Party? What do you what, what do you make? Of all of this now i think it's a great big ball of hot air of nothing and i think whenever that woman speaks or her boss with the really nice hair i just get a rash i swear to you scott i have never heard people <laughs> use more words to say nothing she said absolutely nothing if she did yeah anything, they tell us what people we to read between the lines it, because there is yep. no relief coming up in the budget it seems that they have they 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 start everything by telling us what we already know and how bad it is, but there's never really other than we're going to work on that. So they spend ninety percent of the conversation telling us what we already know, and then end with nothing and no real solution. Uh, are people figuring that out? Oh, I sure hope so. I mean, I sure hope so, but I don't know because I remember when Kathleen Wynne won her last election, and I thought to myself, what does it take to not get elected at times in our country and in our province? But you know, this government's made it very clear, right? There's really five ways to come at taxes, business taxes, climate taxes, international taxes, innovation taxes, and personal taxes. But they've shown no, no proclivity at all to come at anything other than climate-related tax measures. And I think they were telling us today in their own special way that you're going to receive nothing more than that. I mean, saying we aren't going to pour fire on the inflation fire. Well, you did that. It was called the pandemic when you printed mm. about 75% of all the money that our economy has ever seen, you printed in a two and a half year period. So you've already, you're exhausted. You're not throwing fuel on it because you're out of fuel. You have nothing left. And that's the problem with this government. It has nothing left. So it's trying to appeal to those that believe strongly in the green initiative, because if you take that away, that one trick pony is dead. Uh, interesting article in the National Post today about another, quote, phony feminist budget. And what they refer were referring to, I believe, is just, uh, again, uh, social sort of so socially driven policies that really grab your attention, grab your support. But again, it, it's it's smoke and mirrors. There's not a lot of result driven policy there. Uh, you're mostly right. There's no policy driven results there because nothing is going to happen. Nothing that I have read. I've tried to read every single um, thing I can on what's coming in the budget. People that are on the inside, the middle side, outside, huge consulting firms that make all their money on what happens in the budget. And I can't find anything, anything in the budget uh, that's going to lead to any type of real sustained economic growth or relief for people that are $200 away from insolvency. I see nothing, 
But if you want to hear about green initiatives and indigenous initiatives, and by the way, I think those things are solid plans, but not in yeah. the middle of an economic downturn. It's the wrong time, wrong tax, wrong policy. And I think that a lot of people are, Scott, getting very frustrated with this government. Uh, Bank of Canada, we saw them hold or pause uh, rate increases, but not necessarily in other places. What does that say? Are you comfortable that things are on hold or pause now for any period of time? Or are you concerned that these rates could start jumping up again, considering where the U.S. is? I don't think they're going to jump up again. I mean, I'm glad you didn't ask me if I think it's a positive move that they're staying where they are. I think it's a neutral move. Unfortunately, the economy isn't a physics lab, and we have to let things move through the system. So I think what the Bank of Canada is doing is saying we have shot rates up very, very high in a very short period of time, and now is the wait-and-see period. This is where you're on the knife edge. Can we bring down prices without putting either the labor market or gross domestic product into a recession? And the answer is they don't know, but they're willing to take some time, hold rates where they are to find out. Uh, Bank issues that we're seeing in some parts of the U.S., we know the regional banks are different from ours, but is this due to increasing interest rates too quickly? Um, A little bit, but it's also due to just, uh, you know, any time a bank fails, Scott, it's always due to a bank run which is due to a lack of confidence in the banking system. So I wouldn't attribute that completely to rates rising, but because rates rose, those bills that those banks have to pay went up and they had trouble paying those bills. And then people who had money in those banks got scared, went en masse to remove their money. And that's why we are where we are. So partially, but not completely. Eric Cam with us, professor of economics, Toronto Metropolitan University, joining us from FLA during vacation time. And thank you so much for that, Eric. We much appreciate it and have fun. Well, it's always my honor. And I'm going to toast you tonight with an adult beverage. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, I was reading a piece the other day. Maybe it was even today. I can't remember. It's all a blur. Anyway, um, in regard to, and, and I think I've, I felt this way. I think I talked to people about this like early in the pandemic. I think this is like the first wave when people were still, uh, you know, praising the healthcare workers and banging pots and pans and stuff at seven o'clock at night. Anyway, I thought, well, maybe, you know, just maybe we might become a more compassionate uh, world after this. You know, we'll realize we've slowed down. We've stopped the earth from spinning, really. We're all paused and evaluating what's important in life. So will it make it more, uh, make us more compassionate? I was, I was naively saying, will it, uh, uh, will it, you know, unite as opposed to divide us? And of course, clearly that went out the window. And oddly enough, a new poll concert, uh, conducted by Research uh, Co. has uh, found a majority of Canadians support the death penalty, uh, which is bizarre uh, considering where we've come from. Let's bring in Mario Canseco, President Research Co., and with us now. Mario, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure, Scott. Great to be here with you. So uh, before we get to the numbers and the breakdown, because they are a bit more obvious, are you surprised to see these numbers increasing that people are? Yeah, I think we should do that again. You know, many say go backwards in this in this respect. It's been a change. You know, we've been asking this question for the past four years and you have roughly 50 percent of Canadians who believe that this is a good idea to bring back a capital punishment for murder cases. Uh, but this year it really climbed higher. It's at 54 percent. 
what I see is a lot of people who are flirting with the concept, but when you talk to them about the actual sentencing guidelines, the level of support drops to below 40%. So it's still a significant proportion of Canadians who believe that something that we haven't had in the book since the 70s is something yeah. that should come back. And as I'm reading into this, uh, obviously the biggest concern is somebody's going to get convicted wrongfully and, um, and, and be sentenced to death. This is still the major concern. Is that accurate? It is the major concern for those who are opposed to the death penalty. The number one reason for their opposition, 66% of them tell us a person may be wrongly convicted and then executed. And there's nothing you can do after yeah. something like that. We've seen, oddly enough, the changes in the United States because of all of the cases that have been sold through DNA evidence over the past few years. You have several jurisdictions in the U.S. that are now no longer applying the death penalty, even though it's in the books. So it's kind of ironic to see Canadians flirting with the death penalty when it's the Americans who are right now starting to steer clear from it. It's fascinating you bring up, Mario, the whole DNA thing, which has uh, completely changed a lot of these cases. So how do you explain, and maybe this isn't in the research, but how do you explain the change of attitude here? Is it really about putting someone to death or is it about, you know, when people get life, they really don't get life and they're out on parole? Well, I think there's a couple of things uh, that are really responsible for the numbers trending upward, and that is the fact that we've had so many cases over the past few years, certain criminal cases that we followed very well, and now people are being put on a, a parole, and it brings back memories of what happened in those cases, and I think it's a way in which Canadians are expressing their disappointment with the justice system. You know, the notion that somebody can be set free even after 10, 20, 30 years is not something that they're happy with. And the other thing that really changes things is whether there was a story that is changing the way you look at things. And, and you know, one of the examples that I look into is when we had the situation in Nova Scotia where the uh, police officers were killed, the level of support for that particular uh, situation in Nova Scotia jumped. Mm. So it, we're also, in a way, reacting to the cases that surround us. And there's a lot of uh, coverage about crime, even though crime isn't really climbing the charts when we ask Canadians what the top issue is. It continues to be... Uh, cost of living, healthcare to a lesser extent, housing. But that is one of the things that plays a role into our own perceptions when you're being surrounded by all of this coverage related to somebody who committed a murder. So, again, here we go from one extreme to the other. Um, the people get the feeling the justice system isn't working, then we must be applying, the, then we need the death penalty. They're going from one extreme to the other. It is extreme, particularly when we look at the reasons for supporting the death penalty. 57% uh, of those who support it say it'll serve as a deterrent. And there's really nothing that shows us that this is the case in the United States. For instance, uh, one thing that is truly shocking to me is to see 51% who say it'll save taxpayer money and the cost associated with having murderers in prison. So there's people who are looking at this as a tax-saving uh, opportunity more than anything else. And it's a significantly high proportion. It's half of those who say bring back the death penalty saying, let's save ourselves some cash. Wow. Uh, how about the pandemic? How has or do you think the pandemic has changed our opinion of any of this? The, the fact that we've been locked down and where we've been for the last three years and how difficult life is? Well, it's been changing because we were in fields with the same question before COVID-19 and the numbers didn't really change that much. This is the more significant change that we've had over the past four years. 
And it has a lot to do with age. You know, people over the age of 55, certainly more likely to support the death penalty in all of the questions that we asked. And it's something that happens also more with conservative voters. The question about whether the best type of situation that you can have for a sentence would be life imprisonment without parole or the death penalty. For conservative voters, 53% select the death penalty, significantly lower for the liberals at 32% and the NDP at 29 So conservatives over 55, that is the driving force between this flirtation with the death penalty right now. So, Mario, you were talking about how the U.S. is changing its stance on the death penalty because of new technology and DNA. It's amazing what what they can trace nowadays. So they're sort of changing their stance. Let me ask you, on the other hand, Mario, the fact that, you know, if we can confirm this is the person, if we can be guaranteed we're not executing the wrong one, can that technology work to support this? Well, we well, know that guy's the killer. Yeah, so I, I think we're, you're on gonna... something because it, it can be used both ways, right? It's it's definitely yeah. part of the situation that we have at our disposal. Um, but I think it's you know from a from the standpoint of actual legislative change, it's just way too complicated. It would require uh, a Canada talking to a lot yeah. of people who we sign on to documents for and saying, "Guess what? We're now going to be on the same page as Iran and Saudi Arabia." So. It's a flirtation for sure, but the legislative uh, measurements that you need to have in place to get something like this going are just monumental. Do you think these numbers will drop in happier times? I think there's an expectation that that could happen. You know, we didn't see the numbers moving too much. We continue to see conservatives supporting this more than people who voted for other parties. Um, the younger generation is completely dissatisfied with the notion of the death penalty. So part of what happens is that generation starts to grow. Will they continue to have those same values and continue to be upset with the notion of the death penalty? Or are they going to embrace the attitudes of the people who right now are in their 50s? So. It's tough to tell at this point, but uh, it's certainly was certainly a surprise to see the numbers jumping, particularly on two of the questions that we asked as much as they did since 2022. Mario Canseco with us, President's Re uh, President Research Co. Fascinating issue, Mario. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, as you may or may not know, the U.S. Uh, President Joe Biden coming up to Ottawa to have a sleepover and uh, and talk to the Prime Minister. And Canada's ambassador to the United States said she has seen a change in tone and how Washington views its northern allies' commitment to defense thanks to a slew of new investments, including uh, a pile of F-35s that for the longest time no one wanted to touch. Now we got a fleet of them coming. Uh, Dr. Jack, uh, Dr. Jack Cunningham is with us, program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, University of Toronto, and with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Good to be with you again. What do you think the pri uh, priorities will be for this visit up here? It's only a day. It's been a while. Uh, what do you, you know, in, in great uh, handshakes and lots of that, but w what's the business here? Uh, defense spending above everything else. Uh, Ukraine has uh, boosted that to the top of the bilateral agenda. And uh, the recent incidents with the Chinese balloon and uh, and other uh, mysterious objects have uh, have put continental defense very much at the top of the agenda as well. 
And that's something that uh, both Canada and the U.S. have tended to neglect a bit in recent years. I think the assumption, particularly during the Cold War, at least as a hangover from the Cold War, was that the uh, was that uh, the defense of North America would would really begin in in Europe. But now we've had this uh, this slew of provocative incidents. We have technological developments like Russia's uh, long-range cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles. And uh, those are technologies against which we are woefully unprepared in uh, in NORAD. And NORAD modernization becomes ever more pressing as a result. Uh, we know that um, military spending wasn't the biggest uh, priority for the liberals. Certainly that's changed. We remember the stories of the, of the jets getting punted back and forth and back and forth, and now all of a sudden a commitment there. Is this a change in tone, or is there really no choice here? Um, you either get in or you get out. I don't think there is much choice here. It's a question of either... Uh, buckle down and make these necessary investments or risk being relevated to irrelevance within uh, within NATO and within allied councils. So the uh, the government has found itself perhaps against its own inclinations uh, backed into uh, spending a lot more on defense than initially uh, than it initially intended. Of course the what problem is really going to lie in uh, in delivery. We have a hopelessly broken procurement system. And our major defense expenditures often come in uh, well, uh, well behind schedule and well over budget. That could be a problem down the line. What about border security? It seemed that the U.S. was more concerned about its southern border than its northern border. Now we're seeing places like Roxham Road, which, you know, oh, don't worry about that. It's just a few people coming in and they all mean well and don't worry. But this has obviously turned into a cottage industry. There's like 40,000 people that get through. This is human trafficking, plain and simple. Um, Will there be pressure to to shut this down? I think there will be pressure. I mean, the, uh, the the Biden administration has been relatively pragmatic itself on these border issues, but the domestic politics are such that uh, we we may be under pressure to uh, to shut that place down. Uh, I, the prime, I suspect that will be mentioned in the conversations between the president and the prime minister. The prime minister uh, avoids the discussion at all costs and, and says, well, what we really need to do is negotiate the safe third party agreement, which, of course, that just punts everything down the road because nobody has any interest in that, including the United States. Uh, yes. Will he will he use that with Biden? Uh, he may try. If he does, I don't think he'll get very far. What if do you he's think? smart, he won't. If he's smart, he'll uh, he'll try to come up with something a little more practical. Uh, obviously, as we're seeing now, uh, the president of China and the president of Russia are meeting. Where is the world right now in your mind? Well, the uh, it is tempting to see Russia and China as a more or less unified bloc, as we did at various stages during the Cold War. And they are certainly united in resisting the liberal world order. But their national interests point in different directions. I don't think uh, Xi gambled on uh, Putin still being stuck in Ukraine a year out. And I don't think he wants to make himself quite as much of an international pariah as Putin now is with the, uh, the ICC indictment. 
so he's 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 got a fine line to walk. On the one hand, he wants to stay in good terms with uh, Putin and cement that um, that illiberal alliance. On the other hand, he doesn't want to uh, uh, risk sanctions of the sort that have been law, uh, deployed against Russia, being deployed against Chinese companies, which could happen if he were to provide military aid to uh, Putin for use in Ukraine. And he's denounced the sanctions against Russia, but he's been relatively cautious in observing them. Uh, we only got a few seconds left here, Jack. Energy between Biden and Trudeau. What is that conversation like? Uh, I think, I think again, uh, domestic politics are going to uh, rule the roost. Uh, a big part of Biden's coalition consists of uh, environmentalists who are skeptical of uh, major energy projects. And that is probably going to mean we're not going to see a lot of progress on that front. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, PhD program coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College, Monk School, Interna- uh, sorry, University of Toronto. Jack, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. The current article in the National Post by Jamie Sarkanak. Liberal law ensures another phony feminist budget is on the way, says the headline. The finance department would serve all Canadians better by focusing on the overall economy instead of this make work project. And to talk more about all of this, Jamie Sarkanak with us uh, from the Post and with us now. Jamie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Yes, of course I'm well. Thanks for having me on. So a phony feminist budget, pretty strong words, especially for a ha- uh, for a headline. What, what are you trying to say? What is a phony feminist budget? Yeah, well, the headline, headlines are always interesting, but my article talks about the specifically the Canadian Gender Budgeting Act, which is a, it's a very small law. It's only five sections, very easy to read. Um, but it's it's been a law in Canada since 2018, and it fundamentally guides the Canadian budgeting process, um, and it specifically wants the government to promote the principle of gender equality and g- greater inclusiveness in society, as well as look at gender and diversity when it's do, deciding on what measures to tax and what things to fund in the in the Canadian federal budget. So, yeah, that, that's essentially the summary. Well, it sounds politically correct, Jamie. What's the problem? Well, with this one, I mean, it what it does is it looks at each line in the budget and it decides, does this help men more, does this help women more, or is it about equal? Um, so what what gets me about it is that it really atomizes the budget. It kind of makes, this, makes it into an us versus them process instead of a how do we help all Canadians in general. Um, in 2022, most of the, uh, the plurality of the budget went to both genders equally, um, but another 40%, 42% actually, primarily benefited men, according to the analysis, and another 14% primarily benefited women, according to the analysis. So the budget measure, measures that specifically benefited women were comparatively small. Right. But if you actually look at how they did their analysis, they were looking largely at what jobs were made and who was employed in the areas getting funding. Um, so if you want to break that down even further, the, the big budget items that primarily benefited men were things like defense, uh, agriculture, construction, infrastructure, um, which to me isn't so much of an issue in terms of gender equality. I think I still benefit from having 
Uh, is is the purpose here to uh, look at things through a gender lens, or do you think they're se- they're, they're selling gender as campaign? Because I can remember the prime minister standing up and saying, "I'm a feminist prime minister," and I'm not understanding what that really meant. Does that mean he's more a feminist than I am? Does that mean he's more feminist than the average man? Um, it, it seems that is this about gender equality, or is this about selling gender. Yeah, I think they would certainly say it's about just using the gender lens. Um, the law is kind of vague in that way. And it's, I think if you're just passively reading it, you kind of shrug and say, yeah, I like gender equality. This is great stuff. But um, to your point, I would say, practically speaking, yes, it is selling gender. It's um, it, it allows there to be a report that comes out with every budget that really boasts the idea of Gender equity pushes messages according to feminism, but in reality, it's kind of atomizing each little line in the budget according to what I think is sort of a narrow analysis of who gets these jobs. Um, to say that we need to fund more woman-specific lines is, in, in terms of the federal budget, I would say everything should be trying to benefit Canadians equally. So. And it would suggest as well, Jamie, that those things that that help women, then that can no way help men, which is sort of self-defeating. Oh, exactly. And the, the budget line, I mean, a few examples of budget lines that were listed last year as primarily helping women were things like child care, um, the dental benefit, as well as things like research into health care, like a lot of things relating to health care because a lot of nurses are women, so that's how it ends up translating. Um, so research into dementia was listed as primarily helping women. And, you know, I just don't think that's a very helpful way to look at dementia as an us versus them. Like, oh, I'm a woman, so I got my line in the budget to sort of even the scales. I, I don't think that's a very helpful way at looking, of looking at that. Um, do you think this is just part of the divisiveness that is this this government? I mean, uh, you know, to me, he's divisive about gender for the reasons we're just saying. He's divisive about vaccine. He he vilifies the last ten percent when we've got ninety percent of the population, you know, starting to get vaccinated. He he divides with climate change. Ninety percent say they're concerned about climate change. What they disagree about is how to do it. Those people are all funneled in of the deplorable convoy anti-vaxxers thing. It seems there's a lot of these divisive issues. Gender's just another one of them. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, it, it gives them the line to market each budget along a gender equity or feminist lens. And then if, if anyone objects to that, of course, you can be cast mm-hmm. as the bad guy for not getting on board with it. But I, I mean, really, I don't think the budget needs to be feminist or it needs to be pushing a certain line. I think the budget should be trying to grow GDP and help Canadians in general. But but yeah, it, it turns budget season into a time when we can get talking about men versus women again, because because, of course. And you're either on that side or this side. Um, and is this less about feminism and more about just marketing? I think so. It's a great, it allows them to have these great lines into marketing and appeal, especially to female voters. I mean, the idea of a feminist budget after years of, I've never heard of a feminist budget. I mean, so I, I if, can see how that sounds nice to people on the service. So if you've got a feminist budget, Jamie, shouldn't every female in Canada be voting for it? 
Shouldn't everybody not jump on side? If you've got a feminist prime minister, then all the females must jump on board. Is that not what's going on here? That's certainly the message they're selling, because um, who wouldn't, what woman wouldn't want to vote for something in their self-interest? But again, you look at it line by line, and it's like, okay, what are the things that, that are primarily benefiting men, so to speak? It's Again, it's defense, while women definitely benefit from having a competent military, uh, agriculture, uh, women benefit from having affordable food that's made here. Um, construction, affordable housing initiatives. Well, I think we certainly benefit from being able to afford a home. Um, energy, that's a big one. Green energy. Uh, a lot of green energy type projects are listed as primarily benefiting men because that's who does construction and works in mm. energy. But, Jay- no, I'd say women definitely benefit from that. Jamie Sarkinak with us, uh, writing about federal governance in the National Post. Her latest liberal law ensures another phony feminist budget is on the way. Jamie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Brian J. Karam, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter and columnist for Salon.com, the Washington diplomat, host of Just Ask the Question podcast, author of the new book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It, and the man with the longest intro on the show, Brian J. Karam. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. How about you? So far, so good. So uh, uh, this is kind of interesting because when you first talked about this, it's like, nah, this isn't going to happen. And it seems like it is. But what is really in that, in that being that the, the president, the ex-president, former president, is going to uh, going to be arrested tomorrow. Um, what amazes me here, Brian, is in all of the last however many years of whether it's Jan 6, whether it's this, that or the other, it's a porn star charge that's bringing down and, and, and going to set all of this in motion. Is that is that not just weird to you, considering where this guy has been in the last several years? You, you know, we're, we're we're talking about Donald Trump, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. that's not weird. That's typical Donald Trump. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Maybe I'll give you that one. So, uh, so what's going to happen here? Where, where is this going? And again, you know, like the Republicans are saying, really, you're doing all of this, uh, because of a $130,000 check to a porn star and it's against the regulations. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump in any way, but I must admit, as I say to the Republicans, is this the best you can do? I'm also saying to the Democrats, is this the best you could have done here? I mean, is this it? Does this seem like enough to to set the first domino off? Well, this is, uh, I think, the, the least likely or the, the least charge that he could face. I don't think it's um, one that he would have. I, I don't even think he'll have trouble beating it. I'd fight it if I were him. I think the, the ones that are more far more dangerous are the ones uh, around Mar-a-Lago and the ones around um, January 6th insurrection and the Georgia recount. This, you have to remember, is the Manhattan District Attorney, and this was about Donald Trump before he became president. And it's the fact that he improperly put that $130,000, he reported it improperly. Now, normally that would be a misdemeanor in the state of New York, but the – the investigate the chief investigator there, the um, uh, district attorney there is saying that because it was done in furtherance of another crime that is lying on his uh, statement when he was running for president, that makes it a felony. So it's going to be interesting to see just how far this goes and what happens. But Donald Trump certainly isn't taking this 
as an adult would take it. He's threatening more violence and he's saying protests and take our nation back. And he's got he's trying to get the the Florida um, National Guard to stand in front of Mar-a-Lago and keep him from being arrested. And uh, he's got, you know, supporters saying they're going to show up with guns. And what, what can I tell you? This is Donald Trump. And not only that, but look, he tipped us all off. He said on Friday that Tuesday they're going to arrest me. Then on Saturday, he said, whoever leaked that story should be ashamed of themselves. Well, he leaked the story. And then on the next day, he's trying to fundraise off of the story. You see what they said they're going to do to me? Contribute money and help me out. So he lied, lied, and then tried to make money off the lies. Typical grift, typical Donald Trump. So my comments about the porn star, this is just the first of many. This is just the first one to go through. Once these others get through, it just gets complicated as time goes by. Well, yeah, I mean, in in Georgia, they're talking about racketeering charges, obstruction of justice in uh, the Mar-a-Lago case. And God only knows what they'll come obstruction of justice and 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 maybe far worse in the January 6th uh, committee uh, commission. So. Yeah, this is the least that he'll have to face. And he's going to be Donald Trump is destined to spend the rest of his life in court in some form or fashion. Remember, he's almost 80 years old himself. He doesn't have a decent diet. You know, he's going to hit one of those hamburgers one day and he's just going (laughs) to chomp down on the burger and go eat and that'll be it. So that's I mean, it's Donald Trump is not have a good path ahead of him. But, you know, okay. he he made his <laughs> he made his bed. Now he's got a lion. All right. So what about support? Because we've been hearing that, you know, he's calling for these protests similar to the January 6th sort of thing. If he gets uh, hauled in, or is there any indication to believe that that may happen? It seems as if his support may be waning in certain sectors of the Republican Party. Is that accurate? Well, uh, yeah, oddly enough, all the Republican Party, even though they hate him, are coming to his aid because they, you know, they don't they it's politically advantageous for them to do so. But you can bet that the uh, district attorney in uh, Manhattan is taking threats of violence serious because they've already put up barricades there. You can bet that the DOJ takes it seriously. I saw some heightened uh, security, not much, but some heightened security today at the White House. So, yeah, everyone takes it seriously because, hello, we live through January 6th. And despite, you know, Tucker Carlson puts out a video, he might as well have put out a video that said, you know, showed a picture of the Titanic sailing and saying, look, the maiden voyage was a success. I don't know what you're talking about. But, (laughs) I mean, that it it was a that was a riot. I was there. There's no way to disguise it. And we all know what it was. And that's what people are fearful will happen again. But you got to remember. Donald Trump is a bully, and you've got to stand up to a bully. We remember during the January 6th, his testimony about how people, you know, were saying he instigated this. He was and there was lots of, of clips of him, um, you know, trying to, to rev people up into a into a lather and stuff. Is he not doing that now? I mean, considering he's already been through this uh, and Jan 6 and such, um, is he not doing the same thing here? Well, yeah, of course. And then he's also he's going on the air going, if they can do this to me, they could do this to you. Yeah. And he's forgetting that what he's really saying is that no one is above the law. And yes, I've been to jail. I know on well that it can be done to me. It's it's about time it happened to him. He's a criminal. And where do you see this going in the next couple of days? Where do you think we'll be by Friday? 
Oh, hell, by Friday, who knows? <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy to get through tomorrow with my sanity intact. Um, by Friday, we might have another, you know, I suspect that once the first one drops, that we're going to get another one in, in quick succession and then a third one. I don't think that Donald Trump is going to, if he's going to get confident after, you know, there are people saying this will be great for Donald Trump. It, don't believe that. It, I don't know what it's ever great to be indicted for a felony. Um, that's that's just the exact opposite of great. That's pretty sad. So it, that's the the first. I think the others will drop. I, I, and God knows what will happen after that. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, and with us now. Brian, as always, thanks for the time. Enjoy the rest of the week. It should be interesting. Yeah, it will. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Brian. We'll chat later. It is 545. Sounds confident, doesn't he? Uh, You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him there. Read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you are well. Hey, happy spring. It's uh, you, you. Spring arrived less than half an hour ago. Do you feel springy? I do. I do. And I thought it was 534, but it was actually 524. 524, yeah. And, and, and it's, it's my hearing, Scott. I, just, I thought Dave Woodard said 520. 34. Anyway, we did celebrate it, but we celebrated it uh, 10 minutes late at 34, just so you know. It was very uh, great sort of, you know, uh, no, shut off the lawnmower. We don't need that. It's like it's like when you your TV, something's wrong with your TV and you do New Year's Eve and you do the countdown yeah. and it gets to zero and then you look at the clock and it says 1210. It's like, oh, crap, <laughs> missed it, but oh, well, <laughs> what, who cares? So anyway, we were talking last week about Sarah Jemma, the uh, person who yes, won yes. Andrea Horvath's old, sheet, uh, old seat of uh, Hamilton Center. Uh, we remember I was telling you way back when we were trying to get everybody on. The PCs never returned our call. Uh, the Greens came on. The Liberals came on. And the NDP agreed on the Friday. By the time the Monday rolled around uh, in the middle of the show, about half hour before the interview, uh, the NDP sent us a note and abruptly canceled Sarah Jemma. And you you asked me that night if uh, she had, you know, if she would send a note or what have you. Well, uh, Erskine heard from the NDP today, oh. and they wanted and they wanted to book her on the show today. Oh, so so there's hope for you know statesmanshipness. I don't know. Uh, to me, that I said no because the election's over, and um, you know that's kind of like getting the hockey player a week after the game. So, uh, but I thought it was fascinating for them to try to mend bridges after well, uh, stiffing us. But and, you know, and I so get Scott, it. Let's see what happens uh, next time there is some sort of controversial issue or controversial thing said or whatever else because maybe now maybe this is hope that if that happens that she will come on at that time that would be mm -hmm. that would be my hope as a result of this response that the door is open well, I hope so, because, again, you know, it's, we didn't have her on today because there's no reason to have her on today. The story is last week. Uh, but, yeah, if it if it pertains, I, I would hope that uh, she would make herself let's available. So. Let's but let's so. move on. So uh, the whole Donald Trump thing, yeah. I'm still kind of howling that of everything that Donald Trump has done, it's the porn star that's bringing him down. However, as uh, Brian Cram from uh, CNN reporter said to his White House reporter, this is just the first domino to fall. This was actually happened before his presidency, that uh, once this one kicks in, 
then the rest are all going to bing, 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 bing. And they're a lot more serious than uh, the porn star mm. allegation. But it'll be fascinating uh, what transpires over the course of the next week. Well, here's something that I would suggest that uh, we may be walking through a new portal here in politics in North America, especially in the States. And that is when Richard Nixon was um, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, when Richard kicked out? Well, when you, what's the word? I'm it's it, I, I, I'm <laughs> I coming on my Watergated? show. I, when he Watergated? <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, you know, what? I'll, I'll be ready when my show starts. Um, yeah, when he mine's on now, and I still can't think yeah. of it. Uh, so he, it was unusual when that happened. When that happened, but then Bill Clinton comes along. And, oh, it becomes a little more commonplace. And then George Bush comes along and they talk about doing it. And then Obama comes along and they talk about doing it. It's now the thing. It's just if you're a president, it's going to happen that we're going to try and bring you down. Well, you know what? My my concern with this is whether you love the idea of Donald Trump. Impeach. 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 Everybody's been screaming at the radio, I know. Right, Scott. I know. Impeach, it, you two morons. Impeach. All the other words were in my head except for that I one. So, Me too. Uh, so, so, so the fact is that impeachment became just part of the political thing now. Every yeah. president either gets impeached or there's a threat of impeachment. And Badge of honor. Well, now – if this happens, whether you're in favor of Donald Trump being perp-walked or not, uh, my concern is this is now the next step. And if Joe Biden, there's all this story that's going on in the background with Hunter Biden, his son, and money and computers and Ukraine, go look it up online if you don't know what I'm talking about. Joe Biden, I think, should probably expect that when he is voted out of office, if there is a Republican attorney general, Joe Biden almost certainly, I would suggest, is going to end up being charged and perp walked himself. And this is now going to be the thing that happens that, you know, the impeachment isn't sufficient. We are going to now do yeah. this. This is this is going to become a political expectation of a former president that you will end up being charged with something because that's how it works. That's how it works. And it's every time you push the envelope a little bit, the other party is always going to respond by pushing it. The Republicans impeached Bill Clinton and the Democrats tried to get at George Bush right away. Didn't happen. They got Trump with the impeachment. This will be the new thing. And is that a, again, not arguing about whether or not Donald Trump should be charged? I just don't know that that's a healthy thing for a democracy that we just assume that these things become political. Yeah, you kind of you wonder what the shelf life of this whole story is because he just came, he seems to he, he seems to keep reinventing himself. Whether and it's always bad, but I mean he uses it to generate revenue for himself, so it never ends. Well, and and, and you know if you don't like Donald Trump, and there's many who don't, there's a lot of experts who are far more in tune with politics than you or I or a lot of other people who say. You know, this could be the thing that gets him back into the Oval Office, weirdly enough, because enough people will be fired up about this saying it's become a political weapon that they may then be more motivated. Like last election, who was the more motivated side to get out and vote? It was the Democrats because they desperately wanted Donald Trump out of office. Who will be the more motivated side politically if this is seen as a political weapon? It'll be the Republicans. Know. 
I think at the end of the day, um, you know, anybody's going to use political fodder against the other person. But, uh, you know, I've been asking this forever. Everything is political. Everything is political. I know. But at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, people are asking themselves, is this the best that the Republicans could do? Is Donald Trump? Like, come on. There has to be somebody else in the rank and file that has a little bit more grasp of reality than a reality show star. So, I mean, sooner or later, that runs its its shelf life sooner or later. You're not wrong. However, let's just say this as well. And and I agree with you that surely there's got to be someone else besides Donald Trump. However, last election, not the one we just had, the one before, I think it was a fair case to be made that if that out of all the 350 million Americans, the only two, or the two that were left standing as our leaders were the two least likable people in the entire country. <laughs> and then you follow up Hillary Clinton, the only woman, the only person in the States who could lose to Donald Trump. And you yeah. follow that up with a man who is 190 years old and most days doesn't know where he is. <laughs> like, where are the good candidates? It's yeah, like you're just I agree. scraping barnacles off the bottom of the boat here. Barnacle Build a sailor. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. David wrote in enough, uh, funny enough, on Donald Trump. Hello, Scott. History repeats itself with Donald possibly going to prison on tax evasion charges Despite all he did, just like Al Capone, he went in for tax evasion despite all the other crimes he committed, but they could never prove. 